are going inside the smartest show on television. And trans rights are having a groundbreaking moment in popular culture. It's 2015, the revolution is being televised, and this is Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Jörling-Birro. Thanks for listening. Inside, Amy Schumer has, for the past three seasons, proven itself to be both hilarious and groundbreaking. I'm thrilled to talk to one of Amy Schumer's closest collaborators, writer, producer, and her sister, Kim Caramelli, one of the great minds behind what, in my opinion, is the best show on TV right now. But first... This is no less than a civil rights movement, and it's about freedom. That's actor Jeffrey Tambor who said that recently. He won a Golden Globe for his portrayal of Mora on the Amazon series Transparent, the first mainstream TV show with the transgender character at its center. The series, by showrunner Jill Soloway, is based on her own experiences of her father coming out as transgender late in life. Oh my God. I have to tell him. No. Yes. Allie's crazy. Tell me what? Dad is a woman. Does mom know? Of course I know that. You think I'm a dummy? It's his thing. It's his little private kink. Everyone has one. Right, Rabbi? Are you, are you saying that you're going to start dressing up like a lady all the time? <laughs> no. I mean, all my life, my whole life, I've been dressing up like a man. This is me. And a new season of Genji Cohen's Orange is the New Black is about to premiere. The series star, actress and activist Laverne Cox recently became the first openly transgender person to grace the cover of Time magazine. And later this year, Eddie Redmayne, Oscar winner for his role as Stephen Hawking, stars in The Danish Girl about the transgender 20th century painter Lily Elbe. And last month, 17 million U.S. viewers tuned in to Diane Sawyer's interview with Bruce Jenner, Olympic champion and star of the reality show The Kardashians, to hear his very personal story about his transitioning. I'm really happy to talk to Slate's culture critic and editor of Outward, Slate's LGBTQ section, the wonderful June Thomas. Oh, Christina, thank you so much for asking me. Are we finally seeing a positive and dramatic shift in regards to transgender actors, characters, and themes in the entertainment industry? I actually, you know, I feel pretty optimistic about that. I'm not not, not always an optimistic person, but... I, there's a couple of things going on. I think one of the reasons that we're seeing, especially in dramatic shows, in scripted shows, um, you know, Orange is the New Black and Transparent, there are going to be these trans characters front and center because they are very central. You know, this is a new, another new development. They're, they're not just some character off to the side. They're right at the center, especially, obviously, in Transparent. So that is going to be something that continues and that, that we see more of. And, and, you know, Genji Cohen and Jill Soloway are both, you know, showrunners that I trust to, to really give us good storylines and really kind of move that thing along. There is also, in some other shows, there are ways in which involving a trans character is truly novel. It's not just something that we've seen. You know, a few years ago, ridiculously, you know, having gay storylines was seen as, uh, you know, so bold and so innovative and, oh my goodness, you know, people have, tra have gay people in their families you know, it, it was silly that it took so long to acknowledge that. But, um, you know, there was a certain 
uh, novelty in that. And, you know, we've all realized, yeah, you know, gay people exist. We all know several. It's That's not really all that novel. Trans people certainly exist, but they're much fewer. And many of us know only one or two, or some of us may not know any at all. And so I think there is more, there are more ways that you can use these characters in ways that are positive and not exploitative, but are also innovative and surprises. And that's really wonderful when you can do that on television. How have portrayals and possibilities for transgender men and women been in the industry? Well, I think for the longest time, uh, you know, there was a very negative portrayal. They tended to be, especially trans women, uh, were often murderers. You know, there were sex crazed. Um, you know, they were very, very negative characters. Um, and it's been a pretty slow, well, a very slow, I would say, evolution. But I do think that, as you mentioned, in the last year, maybe 18 months, has been an absolute revolution and the picture has just transformed. Uh, we're, still, we're still seeing some uh, cisgender actors playing trans characters, which, which feels um, like, you know, the, a step on the path kind of thing. Sometimes, you know, you just mentioned transparent. Jeffrey Tambor, who plays Maura, is a cisgender guy. And there was some complaints about that, but I think that I think that Jill Soloway, who explained that her own father uh, came out as trans, so now she has a, a mopper, as she calls him, um, or her now, uh, you know, she, she needed to have flashbacks. So she felt it wasn't just a matter of, oh, I don't know, how would I find a trans actor? And there are a lot of trans actors, both, uh, of, you know, who present as male and female, um, but she, she felt she needed that ability to show a, a transformation and a transition. And she has um, really employed a lot of transgender men and women in all sorts of positions um, other than, I mean, both actors and behind and in front of the camera. That's absolutely correct. And, um, you know, Ian Harvey, who played the the teaching assistant, right. that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's not only is he a, a trans actor, but also he got into the show because Soloway has this almost like a program of bringing in people to like speak and to, you know, share their life experiences with the writer's room. And that's how they, he kind of inspired them to, to make that role for him. And, you know, and she made a big commitment to really having a trans writer in the writer's room that she's hired for season two. So she does have an incredible commitment, uh, you know, very seriously to, to sort of employing people and to learning from them, which I think is really amazing and, and, and wonderful. Can you just explain, you were saying cis, if there's someone who's listening who doesn't, is not familiar with the term? Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say that, you know, this is an area where, you know, despite having worked in sort of sexual minority areas for decades, that I'm still really learning. But cisgender means someone who um, presents uh, in the gender that they were born or that they were identified at birth. Um, and of course, it, we should also note that there are many possibilities beyond male or female, you know, that there's this concept of, you know, the, the gender uh, spectrum or non-binary, gender non-binary, things like that, that it's not just a matter of male or female, um, you know, that there are other possibilities. Uh, but um, for the most part, we haven't really seen uh, people outside of the binary on television much. Um, but yeah, cisgender is 
Or we could also say non-trans. Back to what you were saying. Yeah, we have um, Hilary Swank in Boys Don't right. Cry. We have Jared Leto in, in Dallas Buyers Club. You were saying, um, and now Eddie Redmayne, who's going to be in the new movie. Why do you think there's still so many um, non-trans actors in trans roles today? Well, I, you know, sometimes it is about showing a transformation or, you know, a, a, the, the, the arc of a, of a transition, uh, you know, showing the person unhappy when they were you know living in the wrong body and and you know achieving you know it's an arc that's what that's what uh, writers want to to show right they want to show change and evolution um so that's i think one reason but there's also you know television and movies are very expensive propositions um you know the producers aren't always happy about casting well i would say are very rarely happy about casting someone who isn't very well known in a star role, who doesn't already have a huge following, who perhaps uh, isn't in any way controversial, because I think we should concede that there are many people who still do have a lot of issues with trans people and have some strange thoughts about them and, and might you know, not be all that excited about seeing them at, you know, going to see them in a movie. Now, not that I want in any way to allow those people to shape choices, but that is how producers think, I think. They want not controversial, known, popular, likable people in roles. Um, and for the moment, I think that is something that's going to change. Um, there aren't that many trans actors who, are, who have that level of familiarity or sort of stardom. Can you pinpoint an, um, a certain show or something this past year that, or, or, or a, um, an actor, actress that has really made this um, breakthrough? I would say Laverne Cox in Orange is the New Black. Um, not only because, uh, you know, the role, is, it's an amazing, uh, I don't know what you'd say, like chance uh, that she has a twin brother. So... When in the first series of Orange is the New Black, they showed Sophia Bursette, that's her character's story, you know, because in Orange is the New Black, all of the characters get to have their backstory shown. Um, and her backstory, you know, which involved her essentially stealing to pay for her transition, um, she was, they were able to use her twin brother, who of course looked like her. And it was very believable, uh, you know, it, and it was, there was something both about that character and about Sophia, who was the character that I think for, again, there's a lot of education involved in these trans roles. And I think that that show and that storyline both educated people, entertained people. And then I think people were really interested in Laverne Cox, who's been an amazing advocate and has done a whole bunch of nonfiction uh, things. She did this um this show, I think it was called The T Word, uh, that was a nonfiction kind of uh, like almost introducing people to the trans experience uh, that was on MTV, that I think she's been a really, really significant person. And she also was, you know, on the cover of Time magazine. The secret Bruce Jenner says he always tried to keep hidden, now coming to light. The Olympic legend turned reality show patriarch had the world hanging on his every word as he sat down with our very own Diane Sawyer for that highly intimate, anticipated interview. He's six foot two inches tall, welcoming, and a little apprehensive. It's going to be an emotional roller coaster, but somehow I'm going to get through it. Are you a woman? 
Yes, for all intents and purposes, I am a woman. People look at me differently. Uh, they see you as this macho male, but my heart and my soul and everything that I do in life, um, it is part of me. That female side is part of me. That's who I am. And it's been a few weeks now since the Bruce Jenner-Diane Sawyer interview. Have you been able to gather some reactions? I think there was sort of curiosity uh, and and sort of surprise on some people's part that certainly at the time of the interview, Bruce Jenner still wanted to be known as Bruce, that he wanted still to use male pronouns, that that might change in the future. But I think that was, again, a learning experience for a lot of people, that there isn't one rule that, you know, you follow this path and that's how everybody behaves, that, you know, trans people are all different and they all have different feelings and, you know, the lesson being that we should respect their feelings, whatever they are, uh, you know, when they communicate how they want to be, uh, you know, what what pronouns they would like to be used, uh, what, you know, what name they would like to use, that we should respect it, but it isn't always what we might expect kind of thing. You know, and I just want to say there's a second thing that really surprised me was how people responded to his coming out as a Republican, which, again, like, people were surprised that he was a, you know, really strong Reaganite, a pretty conservative Republican. And again, it was a really interesting challenge to the stereotype that people have, well, oh, all trans people must be uh, liberal, they must be Democrat. Like, what? No, it, that it's not about your politics. It's not necessarily about your sexuality it's about your gender expression and I think again you know a really great learning opportunity for for a lot of people and me included you know again I don't want to act like I'm some expert I'm I learn from all of these things too thank you so much June this was fun and uh, maybe I can call on you again I hope you will it's always so much fun to talk to you 2015 is the year of the ass, proclaimed stand-up comedian Amy Schumer. Well, it's really the year of Amy Schumer, if you ask me. Right now, she stars in the most groundbreaking, brave, ballsy, brilliant sketch series out there, Inside Amy Schumer. She has amazing comedy specials and no less than two major motion pictures that she's writing, starring in that are coming up. One with Judd Apatow directing and one produced by Bridesmaids Paul Feig. I'm so thrilled to talk to one of her closest collaborators, her own sister, a writer and or producer on all of these projects, Kim Caramelli. Amy, what are you doing here? Why don't you get back from Iraq? I think we should see other people. Have you always been a fucking trash heap? Excuse me? Would you like to be awakened by a soft kiss on the cheek or a stranger going down on you? Can I just like blow you? I'm gay. So this is just a case of slut shaming. This slut? Inside Amy Schumer is a mix of sketches and interviews, often and brilliantly depicting the sexism that women go through every day. Just this third season, Schumer's sketches have dealt with themes such as the truth behind pop culture's obsession with women's asses, rape culture and sports in a genius Friday Night Lights parody, and the sketch, Last Fuckable Day, guest starring Tina Fey, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Patricia Arquette, is about the day that the media decides that a woman or an actress is too old to be believably fuckable anymore. And as we talk about with Kim Caramelli in the interview, the writers are really working with themes in real time, putting a spotlight on those structural absurdities that women go through. But the show never gets preachy, just hysterically funny. 
For me, the inside Amy Schumer staff reached yet another level of ambition with their 12 Angry Men sketch a few weeks ago, an incredible recreation of the 1957 movie 12 Angry Men. The sketch is filmed in black and white and starring an amazing cast of actors. For example, Jeff Goldblum, Paul Giamatti, and John Hawks. But in this version, the 12 angry men of the jury are debating whether Amy Schumer really is hot enough to be on TV. On the hottest day of the year, 12 ordinary men must wrestle with the single most important question of our time. Gentlemen, raise your hands, please, if you think that Amy Schumer is not hot enough to be on television. One. 12 men searching for truth. Come on! We gotta stop this. It could throw the standard off for, for shows everywhere. But is the truth so easily found? I think she might be hot enough. Are you kidding me? Lines will be drawn. There are facts that tell us definitively that this woman is objectively not appealing. Tempers will flare. She's not a 10! Maybe you're not a 10 either. Oh, Amy. I didn't see you there. I thought you were a garden gnome. I asked writer-producer Kim Caramelli about how this sketch came to life. So, Amy, um, last, last season we did a sketch called Focus Groups open the season um, that Amy and Kurt uh, wrote together. And it's just that idea, like, it's, it's, just, so, it's just so prevalent, um, the, the, the conversation, you know, about a, a comedian, a, a female comedian would so, like, is so often about her physical appearance and not, like, her jokes. And, and it's just that I guess it's something that we didn't really get out of our system. So Amy came in and uh, pitched that she wanted to do a recreation of 12 Angry Men. Um, and then I believe she, after speaking with one of our producers, Kevin Kane, uh, he had suggested let's do it as a full uh, a full episode. Um, so, yeah, it was... And we were all just kind of, like, so so excited about the idea. We'd all seen the movie... Um, and it felt really, really ambitious, uh, because again, you know, our, our sketches are usually, you know, three to five minutes long. And so to, you know, to worry about writing a full, like a 22 minute sketch, it was, you know, a bit overwhelming, um, and, and daunting, at least to me, cause I had never even attempted anything like that. But, um, but Amy, Amy put together such an incredible, and she, she wrote it, she wrote it all out. Um, and like really planned out all the beats. And so once it was all written, it, it, it seemed much more doable and, and exciting. Well, it is, it's incredibly ambitious. The writing, the how modeling it after the, you know, the play and then the structuring and then getting all these amazing, um, Oscar nominated actors in and, and, and the filming and I mean, everything, it's like a little movie. It, it's, it's crazy. It, it felt really special being, being on set. I mean, from, when we got on set and, you know, we, we built it, we built that room um, on a, on a stage. So when we got there and just like seeing how the first shot was set up and the first shot that, uh, the first part that we filmed was, you know, the first shot of the movie with the fan um, in the foreground, like just as soon as we started rolling, it's just like, if you could just feel like that, like that we were doing something pretty special. Um, and it was very, very cool. And I consider it an honor to even have been a part of, of that. And, yeah, it was, it was my favorite thing I've ever been a part of so far. What makes this show stand out so much for me, um, the sketches, besides being just outrageously funny and fearless and smart, it's just like they're, they're these little 
smart studies of sexism and stereotypes and structural absurdities that women go through and how we navigate insecurities and say we're sorry all the time um, and internalize this sexism. And um, are most of the themes things that you guys discuss that you uh, that are part of observations from your real lives? Yes, it's it's either like things that we like we've seen happen, um, like per, like per, things that have happened personally, or like things that have we've seen in the news that like really just stick out, and we kind of think like I'd, I'd like to you know, like say something about that. But I mean, it it doesn't ever really start from the theme itself. Like nobody comes in and they're like, we should write a sketch about you know rape, or we should write a sketch about how you know, women, whatever. It's kind of like, we'll like notice something and then um, that'll give like a, a really like specific idea. Um, and then that's what'll be pitched. So it's not like, like, at least for, for me, I, I, I don't, it doesn't seem like any of us are like setting out to, you know, like what issue can we tackle next? It's like the things that we find funniest is real life and real human behavior. Um, and it's often like some of the saddest things that like are so ridiculous that you almost have to laugh. Um, and I think that's, at least for me, where the ideas for sketches come from, just because real life is the funniest. And you, and you can tell, you guys never go over to preachy or never feel like you are you have some sort of responsibility yeah. to be feminist. It, it just feels very natural. It is. It comes very, very naturally, to, and, and, and it happens really organically in the room. I was wondering if you could just take me into the to the writing room a little bit for how does a week look like? Where How do you talk about these themes and who's in there with you? Sure. So um, we there are, how many writers are there? There's about like 10, I think. It's it's all of us sitting around like a you know, large conference table. And at the beginning of the week, um, we come in with, uh, we each have like three to five pitches of a sketch that we would like to be able to write. Um, and so we like pitch our ideas. And then um, Amy, Dan Powell, and Jesse Klein uh, get together um, like over lunch and decide which which one of our pitches uh, they think that you know that they would like us to write. So then we all come back in the room and they tell us um, this one you know like we want you to write these two out of the five that you you know pitched, um, and then we all go back uh, take a day or two on our own to just write you know the the scenes, um, and then we come back and. Um, we read them out loud. I'm sorry, before we read them out loud, we send in our first draft. And then uh, Amy, Dan, and Jesse give notes um, and suggestions of how to, you know, like tighten it up, like cuts, uh, suggestions for different jokes, how to make it, you know, funnier. Um, and then we rewrite it. And then we come back, we all read it and uh, make suggestions on each other's sketches um, and like punch them up. The and, reading must be uh, a fun process, all of you together. It's so fun. I mean, sometimes when uh, like somebody will pitch a scene, and I'll just like think like I cannot wait to not even just to see to see it on on television, but I can't wait for us to read it in the room and like to hear Amy <laughs> read to hear Amy read it. Um, it's it's so fun, and we we laugh so much. Um, yeah, and every now and then, like somebody will pitch a sketch that you're just like, oh my god, this is going to be huge. This is going to be so special. Um, that was a case for uh, Football Town Nights when Christine Angle pitched it. We were all just like, hold on to your hat. Like, <laughs> we just knew that it was going to be like incredible. 
But you do have, I mean, in, in this, you, you've critiqued um, everything from ageism to what you were saying, rape culture and sport and birth control and, and object. And what has gotten you the biggest reactions, both positive and negative? Um, people were really into Last Fuckable Day. Um, with the, yeah, pe- people have really been reacting strongly to that. I love all of you. I can't... I- I can't believe you're here. I, you're like literally my heroes. God, you look familiar. Are you that girl from the television who talks about her pussy all the time? Yes! That is, yes! Thank you. How fun. Well, come sit. Please. Come on. Yeah? Come talk about your pussy over here. <laughs> is, it, is it someone's birthday or? Oh. <laughs> kind of the opposite. We're celebrating Julia's last fuckable day. Yes. Salud. Um, I'm sorry, did you say Julia's last fuckable day? Mm -hmm. What is that? Mm. In every actress's life, the media decides when you finally reach the point where you're not believably fuckable anymore. Um, It's actually like just now in the news. I don't know if you've read about Maggie Gyllenhaal. Oh yeah, yeah, that, that she couldn't. That she yeah. was, she couldn't. Maggie Gyllenhaal is thirty five, and they told her that she couldn't play um, the lover of yeah, a fifty five year old man. <laughs> yeah, she's like thirty seven, and she like it, 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 it's just like it's the the reason that I think the sketches like resonate with so many people is because like they are real issues like really happening to a lot of people, and so it, it doesn't it, it it's not that like far of a jump to really connect with it because it, it happens every day and it happens all around you. So um, like, that's why I think like something like last fuck all day, even before the Maggie Gyllenhaal thing, like people are like, yes, Oh my God, that does happen all the time. And it makes them think, you know, like, Oh, like I never really thought about that. But now that I look at all these movies, it's like, Oh, that is really what, <laughs> what these roles now are. It's like, you know, like women, like their, their roles as they become older start being referred to as like a triumph. And it's like, what? Like, (laughs) I I don't know. Yeah. So that, that's really gotten a a lot of attention. Um, And any negative attention? There's only one kind of like negative thing. And I mean, like people like will like write like comments on Twitter all the time, you know, like, like little like negative things. And that doesn't really ever bother me. The, the, The one thing that, that really kind of stood out and bothered me, was um one one online magazine wrote a, a negative review of the interview that Amy did with Bailey J. Is this, is this uh, um just for the listeners? Is this with the, with the transgender the interview? Yeah. The first yeah. Yes. Okay, then I understand. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that like they they thought that Amy um asking whether or not she was um going to like whether or not she still had her penis and like they they thought that that was disrespectful and. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, after watching Amy do so many of these interviews, um, I think that she is so, so respectful and, and, and genuinely is, is interested and, and asks questions that I think people are curious about. And, um, I've never, I've never once in an interview, uh, gotten the impression that anybody that she has been interviewing has been upset or offended. And it's just, I don't know that, that just kind of, yeah, I, I, I think because she, because she genuinely does care and is genuinely interested. It's just, I don't know. I, so that, that was the only thing that got like a little bit of a negative response that actually bothered me because I just, I just disagreed with it. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. So talking a little <laughs> bit about you, Kim, you were actually a school psychologist before taking this leap to writing. And does that inform any of your writing today? It, it comes up here and there. Like we have a we have a scene this year um, about, you know, Amy speaking with a therapist. And, you know, with like things about like little like, you know, things with like phrasing and, and terminology that it, it comes up. But I don't, I don't know. I, I haven't, I haven't like pitched any, you know, school-centered ideas or anything like that on, on the sketch show. And then you're, of course, also Amy's sister, and you were very close. Could you describe a little bit of your upbringing? There has been no shift or change in, like, our, our dynamic from the time that, you know, we were, you know, 8 and 12 until and t- now. It's, it's really nice, actually. Um, Amy is the funniest person I've ever met, um, <laughs> and she has always been. So we would, I mean, she, she, since I can remember, has just always made me laugh more than anybody. And so my upbringing with her was we laughed a lot, and we would make up dances and, and plays and sketches, and she used to, like, play this character, Madame Levitsky, and have, like, a crystal ball and, like, would, like, make, like, tell my fortune and stuff like that. And it's, it's she's, you know, she it's, she's always just, she's always just been so funny and, and has been the best. And, and you're still, and she sees, she says you're the funniest person um, she's met in, in interviews, is what I've read. <laughs> I, we have, we have similar senses of humor. So I think just, like, the things that, make her laugh, make me laugh. And so it's just, we, we have just compatible senses of humor. But yeah, we, we laugh so, so much together. And and was your whole family funny? I mean, was there laughter in your home? Everybody had a, a good sense of humor. Our dad was really funny. He's like a really funny, like dark sense of humor. Um, our mom is a, a good laugher. Um, and our brother is also just like crazy funny. He just, he and Amy just did a show together in Chicago. He's a, a jazz musician. He plays a bass clarinet and he, uh, he had him like open for her with a couple songs and then like bring her up on stage. And as soon as he got the microphone in front of her, he just was, he was so funny. And like, like every, it was, she, she said it was like one of the best nights of her life, um, working with him. And I think, yeah, it's just, I think uh, we all just, we all really make each other laugh. Are your parents in, in creative, in the arts as well? Um, no, no. Our mom is a speech pathologist and, you know, works with deaf, with deaf students. Um, our dad was also, not, yeah, with, with, with deaf students. Um, our dad was didn't do anything, you know, creative. Um, yeah, I don't know how, I don't know how we kind of like landed here. What other shows um, and uh, comedians and things do, do you guys like? Um, so, so many, uh, David Tell, I think is just the funniest comic. Um, he, he makes me laugh so much. Uh, Bill Burr kills me. Um, Chelsea Peretti. I don't know if you know Chelsea Peretti. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh God. Her, her special, one of the greats was just like, I was like, I watched it with Amy and my husband and we were crying the whole time. Um, and then shows, uh, <laughs> Uh, we've been watching a lot of like UK um, series, like Happy Valley, and um, uh, our favorite's Judge Judy. And I, I'm oh, actively, okay. I'm actively campaigning to to meet her. But Judge Judy, if you're listening, like hook a sister up, reach out. 
<laughs> it's just you. It's actually still on then, I guess. Oh, my God, yeah. It's like the highest required rated viewing. daytime show. It's required viewing. She's so smart. She's so funny. It's the best. I'm sure that she hears she'll be on in a minute. She has to be on your show. That would she be like the to. best. I can I can't imagine the amazing sketch you guys would write around her. It would actually probably be terrible because we'd be so starstruck that we wouldn't be able to like function or perform around her. We'd just be staring at her smiling. <laughs> so that would be the entire sketch, just us like beaming at her. So what can we expect the rest of the season? Let me think. I don't know. I don't know what I'm allowed to say um, because usually I don't do any podcasts or interviews because nobody wants to talk to me, but (laughs) I don't know what I'm allowed to like say. That's going to change after all these things you're doing this year. That's for sure. But uh, we can come to expect that it's going to be really good. Some of my favorite, favorite sketches um, are are coming up. And last week we read that you're writing a new feature um, with Amy, a mother-daughter action movie produced by Bridesmaids, Ghostbusters, Paul Feig. I mean, how are you doing all this? Um, one at a time. I don't, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's really crazy. It's uh, this this year, and particularly these, these last few months have been um, kind of kind of crazy. Uh, and yeah, last yesterday or the day before, they you know just announced the mother-daughter. Um, movie. Amy and I are rewriting it. It's, uh, it was originally a Katie Dippold script, and it's so good and so funny. And yeah, I can't wait to can't wait to get further into it. This was such a pleasure. I'm so Great, thank you so much. Really honored to talk to you. And and in the future, um, after your movie, if you haven't become so famous after that that everyone wants to talk to you, I'd love to call on you again and and ask about the Definitely. film. Definitely, yeah. Reach out to my assistant's assistant, assistant, and she'll. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to all the guests and to you for listening. If you have feedback, head over to the webpage popcultureconfidential.com or Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and write something there. This edition was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Borg, produced by René Wittestedt and myself, Christina jörling Biro. Until next time! I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.